Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. I'm Logan Jones here with Evan Knowles, again recording out of our favorite spot in Lexington, Awesome Inc. Um, a big, pretty big mandate just got just got dropped on on Kentucky. Yeah, last night. A uh, pretty big deal. Gonna have a lot of legal implications. Um, but let's. Cut it. Yeah, you know this. I think so. Well, okay. I mean, my You're legal counsel, yeah. as in my roommate who's finished one year of law school, is telling me that it is unconstitutional uh, to put a mandate on masks unless you like hand out masks at the door. So what we're talking about is that I'm, I'm sure you guys know by now, uh, Governor Bashir has mandated that everyone has to wear masks when they're in public. Um, there's some different stipulations about when you don't have to wear, wear them, but basically you can get fined $25 for not wearing them. You got any opinions on this, Evan? I'm not a fan. I mean, I'm, I'm all for like keeping people safe. Like yeah. if this is, I'm not saying if this coronavirus is a real thing, but the problem is nobody knows anything about it. Like nothing. Well, First think, they tell us no masks. Yeah. They say they're not going to help. Then they then they turn around and mandate it and tell us we're going to be fined twenty five dollars yeah. if we wear. Nobody not. knows a damn thing about the thing. So that bothers me, and I just don't like the government telling us we have to do something like that. Yeah. I mean, yes, you're right. I Am think I'm all for like helping people and keeping people safe. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, but well, in other countries, a, in other countries, approach. it's just like a culture to wear the mask so that the governments don't have to ask them to do it. But here in America, we're just stubborn or not used to that. We just not ingrained in our culture. I think that masks should have been worn the whole time. I think they help. I think it's ridiculous that it's been ever said that it didn't help since this is a, a respiratory illness that can be spread through air particles. Like a mask has to help at some extent. I digress. We just had a really cool episode that we recorded with <laughs> with Brad Flowers of Bullhorn Creative. Um, what do you think of this episode? Uh, really important episode. Uh, so we had, uh, like several episodes ago, uh, we had a guy named Christian back on the episode and we really dug into user experience. Uh, and another part of the whole branding of a, of a company and a product is the rest of the brand. You know, user experience is, is more of the product and the brand around the product. Uh, but the whole brand is basically everything else. It's all encompassing. Uh, and, and a really important part of growing a company is having a solid brand that communicates your values, uh, communicates what you're trying to solve in the world. Uh, so that's what this whole discussion was about, was going through what goes into a brand, how to build a brand. Uh, and, you know, Brad is an entry veteran. Uh, he's written several great books, one of which is now Amazon's featured book of the month for entrepreneurs, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all this month, it's a dollar... Uh, the audio book is a dollar ninety nine, I think, is what he said. For sure. We'll we'll for sure put we'll the, drop a link. Yeah, we'll put it in uh, in the bio or in the in the caption here. But yeah, he's very uh, very knowledgeable guy on branding. So if you're starting a business, this is uh, this is one to listen to because branding again is is so important. Yeah, and I think it was a good conversation not only about branding but a lot of what we talked about was so applicable to other parts of entrepreneurship and other parts of life in general. We talked about one of my favorite parts of it, and I actually ended up texting it to Evan so that I wouldn't forget it earlier in the day when I was checking out their website. They have a, a creative manifesto, um, or maybe a creative manifest, manifesto, um, and it has basically all the rules that they go by when they're going through the creative process, and I sat there and, and read, read them off to him and had him give some thoughts on them, um, and I, as I was sitting there reading them, I was like, this is so applicable to what's going on today or uh, starting a business in this sort of aspect, so... I really enjoyed the way that they approached their creative process and uh, some of the, the conversation that we had there about how he goes about the, the team, um, being creative with the team and his ideologies behind that. So uh, again, as always, we really enjoyed this episode and we think you guys will too.
All right. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast, guys. We are with Brad Flowers this week. He is a partner at Bullhorn Creative Agency uh, right here in Lexington, Kentucky. And he's also an author. He's the author of The Naming Book, The Five Steps to Creating a Brand, and Product Names That Sell. So we're looking forward to sitting down with Brad and just talking through branding. That is one of the things that is so uh, important when you're starting a company is being able to create a good brand that people recognize so you can communicate your values, your product, uh, and everything that goes into what makes you a great company. So we're going to dig into that for you listeners that might want to learn about that. Uh, So Brad, thanks for joining, man. Hey, thanks for having me. This is great. So we got the intro from Eric Hartman over at Commerce Lex. Yeah. So he has been an awesome partner of ours and has helped us meet many people. So we are very thankful for that. Uh, But Today, you know, we really, like I said, we're going to jump into branding. But before we do any of that, I uh, would love to hear about your background, kind of how you um, have progressed through your career uh, and, and ultimately will go up to the point where you started Bullhorn. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm mainly from Indianapolis. And I say mainly because my, when, I was, um, when I was younger, my dad worked for a pharmacy chain that was eventually bought by a CVS, I think. And they had this kind of strange promotional program where you'd start at the smallest town and then you'd stay for a year and then you'd get kind of promoted and moved up a town. So I kind of lived all over central Indiana as a, uh, as a kid and, but settled mainly in Indianapolis. And while I was in high school, my parents moved to Texas. So I ended up eventually finding my way because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, down to um, to Dallas, and I ended up going to the University of North Texas after a, a brief stint in the Dallas kind of community college system, which was actually a great experience, and I'm really happy I was able to do that. So funnily enough, for a business person, my degree's in English literature, which is a non-traditional <laughs> starting point, uh, but it served me well enough, uh, and I get to use the writing quite a bit, turns out. Yeah, that's good. Uh, So professional background after you graduated. Yeah. So I don't have one. I graduated and um, I, so I kind of always thought it's like, if you like to read books, especially literature, like what other job is there other than teaching literature? And so I took a year off and I was applying to, to PhD programs. And as I was doing it, I got a job at a local bike shop here in Lexington. And I, uh, you know, I, I found out a couple of important things while I was there. One, I became really interested in business, which for, for me, it wasn't really, it was, it was never really on the table. I think my parents always kind of thought like, uh, I guess the options that were presented to me were more, um, corporate in nature, I think. And so the idea that you could start your own business, uh, wasn't something I had even considered. And so I became really interested in business while I, uh, eventually ended up managing the bike shop. And then also I was able to uh, help put on a citywide event called Bike Lexington. And while I was there, I became really interested in marketing and how you, how you make something sound interesting, how you can communicate a message, what sort of outlets are there for communicating. And so um, those were kind of two important things. And then the third most important lesson I learned is that I didn't really like to teach. And so I, I didn't, I was kind of stuck. Like I, I didn't know what to do. I just knew I didn't want to teach. And eventually I ended up, uh, getting to the point at the bike shop where I kind of felt like I had, I had done it. And apart from like owning a bike shop, which I didn't really want to do, I didn't think there were, there was really anything else for me there. So 
I left in um, the summer. Let's see, I, I was going to leave in the spring of 2008, and then I decided to stay through the busy season of the summer. And that was kind of when the height of when gas was like four four fifty a gallon. So it was it was a Damn. super busy time for the bike industry. And um, it was so I didn't really think that over uh, over the rest of the summer and that fall that the recession would kind of get to kind of become what it became. And I wasn't able to find a job. So I ended up becoming a reluctant entrepreneur. And so I'm, I'm one of the rare people who have, I don't think I've actually ever had a, uh, a resume. Um, so here I am, no resume, no professional background, but we, we figured it out. Uh, I started, I met a partner who had been putting on music festivals and we started off with this idea that we would uh, do kind of general marketing. And over time, one of the lessons we learned, which I was, I was kind of thinking about getting ready for, for this is we kind of learned that it's important to kind of keep in mind three things. And as we worked on different projects, we were kind of constantly analyzing what we were good at, kind of where's the intersection of what we're good at, what we can make money doing and uh, what benefits the community. And those are kind of three pillars that we really, that's kind of like the, the short story of the last 10 years is kind of constantly analyzing uh, each project for those two factors and then honing in on what, as you mentioned, now we really, focus on that kind of core branding piece, which is the, the language and design that sets the foundation for the company. So what would you, what would you consider the start of Bullhorn Creative? What was your guys' first job, your first client? Talk a little bit about how that, how that went. Um, yeah, the first job, I think for a lot of service startups, it's like, or maybe people, I don't know, for a lot of businesses like ours, it's friends and family. Mm -hmm. And I think, I'm trying to remember, I think the very first job, they might have happened at the same time. The bike shop hired us to do to to do some signage that I, the bike shop that I just left, which was nice to kind of give us a head start. And then also at the same time, there was a Vespa dealer that was opening, and they hired us to do an Italian themed launch party. <laughs> and so we had, uh, you know, we had a music music or a movie playing in the background, and um, I don't know if we ended up realizing that we were good at that or not. But we didn't do any more launch parties after that. And so you guys, you guys continue to evolve past those family and friends. And uh, when did you guys kind of decide, uh, here's what Bullhorn stands for. Here's what we're going to do. Was it early or were you just, you know, kind of taking whatever business came to you? Uh, talk about the evolution of, of Bullhorn after you got past those, those first two clients. Yeah, I, that's another bit of business advice that, you know, everyone talks about focus and how important focus is and, I do think it's important, but I also think it's kind of a luxury of having money. And if you don't have any money, you kind of have to take whatever you can get. Mm -hmm. So uh, for example, early on, um, we had a friend who called and she was, uh, she was running a big, or she was running a, a, a music festival. And she said, Hey, I don't know what Bullhorn is, but our bar, our, our bar vendor just backed out. Can you guys sell beer? And so we were like, yeah, we can probably figure out how to sell beer. And so we got a one day liquor license and rented a U-Haul and bought a, a lot of beer. Uh, so again, like an example of uh, something we figured out, like when you're sitting at four in the morning, counting $1 bills and your hands are like all gray from the filthy filth of the money, you realize, you know, this isn't really what I want to be doing with my life. And so that, that was an example of uh, something we decided we didn't want to do anymore. Um, but I think, 
let's see. We, um, it, it's funny. It's been such a, like to me, looking back, it feels like such a slow progress that it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment. It really feels like, you know, quarter by quarter, year by year, it's kind of slowly each job kind of building on each job. One job kind of leads to another and, and kind of, I, th- I think, you know, we had a couple of things going for us. We were, uh, we would try hard. We were nice to our clients. And I think simple things like that kind of put you, set you apart from a lot of people, surprisingly enough. Uh, and, and because of that, we kind of kept taking, t- t- kept taking steps up and, um, you know, and eventually, you know, now we work, work with the city of Lexington, for example, or universities or um, organizations really across the country. But it all, uh, it starts with those friends and family, but I think it's just like kind of treating, taking the relationship seriously and using a good work to to build and focus on and and get more work from from good work. Yeah. Uh, I had, I had done a little research and asked around and and heard that some of your clients are, for instance, like Space Tango and some other, other companies in town. Talk about some, some companies that our audience might, might be familiar with. You had mentioned the university just, just now. Uh, talk about some other clients you guys have, and then we'll we'll jump right into the branding and get some of your advice on branding. Yeah, we fund some really cool projects. Um, the Eastern Kentucky University hired us to help transition away from their kind of visualization of the kernel as their logo. Uh, it, as you know, people are becoming more aware of what uh, how kind of representation matters to different people, and they wanted to get away from kind of the plantation owner looking person who mm-hmm. represented their athletes, but wasn't really at all representative of their athletes. Um, we've worked for, like I said, the city of Lexington, like, or in, in this region, uh, like Lextran, Good Foods Co-op, App Harvest, Space Tango. Um, what else? I'm sure I'm forgetting a ton. Uh, we just finished a big project for Waterfront Park in Louisville, which was, uh, which was really fun. Okay. We do some work for uh, Brown Foreman, uh, who owns Woodford Reserve and, Jack Daniels. We just did a big alcohol responsibility project for them, which was really cool and it's been ongoing. But like I said, we kind of worked for clients last year. I spent a ton of my time working for, uh, there's a fintech startup called Cadre. They do real estate and fintech stuff. Cadre. Yeah. I know. I know Cadre. Okay. Um, so we worked for them for about six or nine months and did a ton, did a ton of work. Um, so yeah, we're kind of, we're kind of all over the place. Very cool. Where, where's Cadre based out of? They're in Manhattan. Okay. Yeah. No, they're they're pretty well known brand. I get ads for them all the time. Oh yeah. They want you to buy those buildings. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, so let's let's actually jump into the meat of of what we want this episode to be, which is you know we want our audience to take away from this uh, major learnings around branding and just really come away with this with a good understanding of of what it takes to build a good brand. Um, so for somebody that doesn't know much about branding, how would you describe it to them? What's the purpose of branding? What is it? Sure. Yeah. Branding is a really slippery term and it's the people who work in the branding space that make it so, and it's kind of our fault. So I think one, one issue is companies tend to converge on terms that sound cool. And so like what was once a marketing company became an advertising agency and then advertising agencies started calling themselves digital agencies and then started calling themselves branding companies. So there's this kind of convergence of language. So it sort of means a a lot of different things. Um, What we mean by branding is we develop the front end language and and, um, visual elements that make the foundation of your brand. And I think 
your brand can encompass everything from the employees you hire, the space you inhabit, the products or services that you create. Uh, really, it's kind of all of the places, all of the touch points, um, and all the ways that you interact with your with your clients or your employees, really, too. Those are all kind of, it's sort of like, I think of it sort of like culture. You know, culture is a word that we all use fluently and kind of get what it means. But when it comes down to defining it, every every person's going to have a different definition of what you mean by culture uh, because it's kind of complicated. Uh, so that's, that's, that's kind of how I see the brand. So like, for example, if someone hired us, we would deliver a, a brand manual and the, in it would be typefaces, logo. Uh, we do a fair amount of naming. It would be the foundational brand language that would be kind of like um, a lot of times it's values, vision, those sorts of things. And uh, photography style colors. So that's, that's the main offering, but then inevitably, and what we're finding more and more is we have clients who, who kind of like, okay, so now what, especially we have clients who are kind of this midsize organization where they have lots of ongoing design needs, but they don't have, it's not quite big enough to have a marketing department. And so we work in a creative capacity ongoing with several clients too. Um, and so it's kind of hard to decide where those stopping points are, but what kind of where we decide to stop is we don't do any, we don't do any media buying or public relations. Sometimes we'll design advertisements, but we don't place the ads. Um, so that's kind of a long way of saying it's hard, kind of hard to, de- hard to define exactly what the term is because people in the industry, I think make it, it kind of benefits companies that it's a little bit confusing because it allows them to kind of, do a lot of different things and, and sometimes not do any of them particularly well. Yeah. So when you, when you approach a company or a company approaches you, I assume that the company might be a little confused on what branding actually means as well. Is there some sort of education that you guys have to do or what is, what does the creative process look like for you guys in terms of communicating with this company and, and distilling into a brand, what this company's brand is actually going to be? No, it, it, I would say five years ago, that was more the case where people were confused with what they wanted. I think people now kind of get it and they, and I, I, maybe it's partly just from spending more time. Maybe we're doing a better job on our website. I don't know. Um, but it, I feel like people, people now kind of know, I mean, to make the sort of financial commitment that it takes to work with us, it's like, we can't talk someone into that. They kind of already know that they need what we do. And so whether that's a funded startup or if it's a established company that's going through a change of some sort, whether it's change of ownership or whatever, um, we, uh, they, they typically, they're pretty clear on what, are they pretty clear on what they need? They don't always know the process. And so like for, for us, what we do is we started, I think what makes us unique is we lead with a series of language exercises because what we found is that if we start talking about design, for example, um, whether it's any type of design, whether it's like logo design or UX or anything, 
most clients just don't really have the vocabulary to talk about it. And so what we do is we start talking about things like values, like why do you do what you do? What makes you interested in this? Why are you passionate about this? As a professional, you could do anything. You know, why do you get up and come here every day? And so I think if we can nail those sort of things down and translate that through language and design, that's when we feel like we really do a good job. And hopefully people don't come to us for sort of a bullhorn look, but um, they come to us because we can help them uncover the kind of the best version of themselves. Yeah. What, what is, you know, you mentioned trying to get in their head um, mm-hmm. and then, and then using what you've learned uh, language wise and values wise to then go and, and create those elements you're talking about. What's, what's the hardest part of, of that process? Once you get in their head and you understand their language and their values and then you go on and you create, you know, this, these brand elements, what, which element is the hardest or what part of that process do you think is the hardest? Um, I think there's, there's kind of a, a midway point when there starts to be kind of decision fatigue with clients. Uh, early on, there's a lot of energy. People are excited at the exercises tend to be really fun. Um, then once they start seeing the work and they can kind of imagine what it might look like, then they start to get really excited. Uh, it's, it's often, it's often making those final decisions when it goes from kind of everything being a possibility to like, okay, now we have to pick one thing Mm -hmm. that tends to be the hardest part, especially, especially around language. You know, there are some pretty tangible barriers for most people in design. Like they just don't actually have the software to make a logo. So, there are some like practical barriers, but because everybody talks, um, they, they also think they, they're kind of an expert on language. And so that's, that is often a challenge is, is gaining the trust to, for them to just say, okay, you guys are the experts that may not sound right to me, but we'll go with it. Um, and then the kind of the next steps when it comes down to like gathering content for a website or something, that's also, it's also a pretty profound challenge when, when clients realize how much work they're going to have to do to, um, to help with the project. <laughs> it's a lot of content. It's a lot of content. Got to create a small content site. nowadays. I know. Yeah. So what, what kind of person would you say is good at, at branding and coming up with that brand? Is it more of the CEO role of distilling that vision for their company into what the brand needs to look like? Or does it take a more uh, creative person who might've gone to school for, you know, digital media and design kind of thing, just kind of put us in the mind of the person that is best at creating a brand for, for a company. Hmm. That's a good question. Or are there natural strengths that a good brand or person that does branding has? Hmm. Yeah. I, I think there are some, definitely some strengths. And I think a lot of them are, are generally the strengths that creative people in general have. And I think it's, there are some basic things like curiosity, like broad learning um, and the ability to do something and look stupid. Like, you know, a lot of people, that's just kind of like practical thing. Like they'll never be good at it because they're not willing to put themselves out there enough to kind of look stupid Mm -hmm. because, you know, interesting ideas are always risky. They always look stupid at first. You think of a name like uh, Apple for a computer company. I mean, the first day, that's a dumb name, Um, but now in retrospect, because everyone loves their products, it's like, oh, it's the best name ever, you know? And, it, and I'm not saying it's a bad name, but like day one, it had to have felt really risky. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's definitely 
like for us, we, we um, do everything in kind of a team-based approach because we tend to think that's the best way to do it. And I don't want it to seem like it's groupthink because again, like my philosophy of creativity is one, I think um, if you're looking for one idea, you're never going to find it. You have to generate lots and lots of ideas. So whether it's a logo or uh, a piece of language or a name or anything, you have to generate tons and tons and tons of stuff to see what's going to work. And so it's the people who are kind of willing to, you know, put in the time and work to do that. And uh, I think it, for us, it's um, we we like to have someone who can who's thinking kind of like open ended and more creatively, and then also some people who are thinking a little more strategically, because at the end of the day, we're not making art. You know, we're making something for a business, and it has to work in some like pretty practical ways. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of con- keeping in mind it's that kind of back and forth between like what's the kind of ideal expression of this, and then what are the practical. Um, what's kind of the practical criteria that this has to do, you know, like for example, a logo practically needs to look good as small as an avatar on social media. And it needs to look as, you know, good on the side of a building um, or on a hat, you know, like, so, so there, there are some practical limitations just in that. And I think that goes for kind of, kind of the whole thing. Um, So like for us, because branding is multifaceted, it just requires multiple people. Yeah. Yeah. That whole collaboration part that you mentioned where you, you have to come up with many ideas and iterate and, and feed off each other. I was just talking with, with my team um, at Simba about this and you know we're going through the branding process and going through some user experience uh, testing and things like that. And I was just talking uh, with one of the guys and said, you know, debate, I don't care how heated it is, is very healthy when you're de- developing this stuff, as long as you don't let your egos get in the way and you come up with the best decision as a team, that stuff's healthy. You know, people look at, you know, passionate debates is something that might be negative, but if as long as the ego doesn't win at the end, it's it's going to be good, right? Absolutely, I think um, the debate the debate's really important, and um, and it's like I think a part of maybe a, a big part of the job for and maybe a lot, big part of my job right now probably is like creating safe space for people to have those sort of debates, as I kind of like work less and less on on client work and and kind of move into this new role of understanding how to kind of manage teams of creatives, which is a a kind of a a different thing for me. Yeah. Touching on the teams of creatives and what you just said there with the, the going back and forth and the debating on it. I think that kind of just clicked with me just then that it makes a lot of sense that you would need a team to do some really big creative task like that. Because if you just have one person, when you think about it, it's going to be that one person's uh, design background. That's the only input that's really going into it. But when, when you have a team that's kind of going back and forth, I could see, you know, people are bringing different pieces of, of things and people might have a better mind for thinking what a logo would look like on the side of a building. And I think that's that, that comment there just made it kind of click for me that, you know, it takes a team to, to pull off one of these creative yeah. feats and, and make something really work like that on a lot of different levels. Yeah, We've definitely seen that. We, um, you know, we were working with, you know, one of, one of your ex interns, uh, Armando, yeah. and yeah, yeah. really, really have enjoyed working with him and, we also are working with another gentleman uh, who's doing more UX, uh, but they're feeding off each other really well, uh, and that's been good to see. And so, yeah, Logan, I think you're right. You know, it does take you know, multiple perspectives because um, it's hard. You know, I've I've sat down and, and tried branding and myself, and I've noticed it definitely takes collaborative effort. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that it kind of applies in my own experiences is trying to do middle tech stuff. 
and then seeing how much something can improve when we brought on Jake. Yeah. And with my, when I was doing middle tech stuff, I thought I was iterating and trying to break things and be creative. But when we brought on Jake, somebody who really knew what they were doing and then him and I were able to go back and forth love each other. I think it's a very clear improvement. Oh yeah. On our branding. Yeah, stuff. no, it's, so. it's iterative over time for sure. So, you know, there's all these different elements to branding that we had, we've already previously talked about, you know, the brand voice, the, the language, the motion graphics, color selection, color palettes, photography, writing, user experience. Uh, in your history, being around so many different individuals in the branding space, do you see that people group these together and are good at certain ones, but maybe not others? And what are the patterns you see there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, the writers, yeah, I, I guess the, that's a, that's a good question. How do we, there's a lot that goes into it. So I imagine a person's going to want to pick maybe one or two that they really, you know, we were talking about this word focus and we're going to talk about it more later, but you know, where are people eventually as somebody moves along in their career, you, you think they'd want to focus specifically on two things, but maybe be good at everything, but be super good at a couple, right? Yep. Yeah. So it's a little easier to talk about designers. So like generally we would hire someone whose core capacity is a graphic designer and specifically they're an identity designer uh, because that's the core thing we offer. Most people hire us. I like to, you know, I like to flatter myself and think they hire us for all this strategy, blah, blah, blah. But really they hire us because they want to look better at the end of the day. You know, they want to look cooler. And so we do, we, um, we hire identity designers and then typically they'll have one or two, uh, kind of secondary or tertiary skills. So like often a, a, an identity designer will also have a, uh, some expertise in motion design or in photography or videography. And that's kind of what we're looking for as a small team. We're really looking for kind of who can do the core thing really well. And then what secondary things can they bring to the table to help kind of round out and make the, the identity really robust. So on the design side, that tends to be it for the writers. You know, the, most of the writers also will work on naming projects just because that's a pretty natural extension. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of times we'll try to get a couple of other, like a designer, a, so some maybe even an account person to think about it because it is, it is helpful to have outside perspectives. Um, and UX is kind of a whole nother thing in, in and of itself. I mean, it, I don't even, I don't know. I don't know that designers may always make the, the best UX people. I don't, it, it almost is like a psychology exercise. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a good question. And, and I don't know that I have a, have a great, although we definitely have some people at Bullhorn who have a, have a background in, in design who has, who, who I think can kind of intuit what users want and how to, how to make things that people want to interact with. You know, we, we had Christian Beck on in the past, Innovate Map up in Indianapolis, uh, and they're uh, solely, I think, a, a, mostly a UX agency. Um, and that conversation was definitely different than what we're talking about now. So I can imagine how, you know, the skill sets that go into that are, are a little bit different. You know, it's more about understanding the usefulness of a product and how people are interacting with the product versus, you know, wh- what are the colors and what do the colors communicate? What is the, the way we... Um, you know, the, the language and the, the name of the company and the logo, how does all this fit into UX? It, from what that conversation went, um, it's more about, you know, how are these people getting useful uh, information out of the product? How are they getting utility out of it? And uh, what's the, you know, minimal amount of clicks we can help somebody get something accomplished? Um, definitely definitely seems like a different different skill for sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. 
So with your own personal preferences, what, what's probably your favorite part of, of building a brand? Uh, I like my favorite part is seeing the transformation that happens in companies. I, th I find that the most rewarding for sure. Uh, I think they come in thinking that it's going to be sort of a surface exercise. And then one of the most surprising things and one of the things people find the most valuable is at the, at the end of the exercise, how it galvanizes their team and how it really like energizes their culture. Um, that's, I mean, to me, that's the thing that really, that really makes me excited. You know, I think we talk about like, why do we do it? And we think of branding as sort of an ethically neutral exercise. You know, you can use it to do great things and you can use it to do terrible things. And so like, it puts a lot of burden on us to kind of seek out the, the companies that we think are, um, are doing, you know, making the world a better place. And so see, seeing those companies thrive and empowering those companies is, is really, um, I don't know, it sounds kind of silly, but it's sort of a gift. I mean, it's like a, it's a wonderful thing to see. It's a, and it's really rewarding to be part of. Yeah. I, I kind of hear what you're saying. It, Cause we, you know, we're going through branding exercises now and we feel like we've, we've got kind of the direction we want to go and the color palette and all this stuff. And it, it just feels like once you get that identity, the momentum, it feels like you get this momentum behind you, the confidence behind you. Cause now you, you kind of resonate with the company a bit more, right? Absolutely. I mean, you're getting something to look at. It's almost like it's, yeah. you know, with software, it's, it's hard, it's hard for it to make it a physical thing. But when you have a brand to it, it's like, here's my vision kind of mm -hmm. coming to life, especially sure. when you're communicating all of those different values and everything into it. Um, but Brad, real quick. So I found something on your website. I'm going to pull it up on my phone real quick that I, it really resonated with me. And I'm, I'm not going to ask you to hit on every one of these points, but I'm just going to kind of read through them. It's your creative manifesto. Um, I really, I really like that a lot. So I'm going to just kind of read through them so our audience can hear it. And then if there's any things that you want to pull out of that, that really you think are the most poignant points, uh, feel free to, to stop me or, or add thoughts as we go. Um, so it starts, creative work is built on trust. You must give trust to receive trust. Um, number two is research before creation. Know your subject. I think that one's really important. Mm -hmm. Number three, ask questions. Listen to understand, not to respond. I think our nation needs a lot more of that right now. Uh, number four, do not create and analyze at the same time. Mm -hmm. Number five, go where you need to go to generate new ideas. I want you to hit on that one briefly real quick before I go on is when you're saying go where you need to go to generate new ideas. Are you talking about a physical place or more of a mental place? Or is it, is that like your creative space that you're referring to there? Yeah. At that time we were, um, at that time we were working more out of a single office. Mm -hmm. And so there was a kind of an expectation that people come to the office, which of course now has totally changed. And so that's probably, I think it's still relevant because people do great work in different places. And especially when you're trying to be inspired about something like just like moving from one place to another. For example, we, we used to have uh, an office upstairs next to the, the building next to us. And when we moved downstairs, it was, it was really surprising to see how the work, the actual work that we did started to look different. And it's, it's like totally. the most surprising thing. I can um, see that. But it's, it's, it's real. And I think for people to be inspired, you kind of need to be out and about and some people want to be in nature. Some people want to be kind of out sitting on the sidewalk, being around people walking around. Absolutely. Um, and so it's, I, and I think, yeah, the more I talk, the more like now I think it's even, it's even more important because as we've been kind of um, healthy at home here, it's, 
with a kind of heightened anxiety and isolation, it's really, you, you kind of like, I think one of the first thing that happens is you sort of feel a little scattered or kind of hard to focus. And that to me, that's like the first, the number one enemy to do creative work. If you can't really like zone in on your task, mm-hmm. you it's, it's really hard to do anything good. And so figuring out how to get in the best headspace to create, I think is even more important probably right now. Yeah. I'm sure we could have a full conversation about how coronavirus has affected branding and creativity. Yep. But by not being able to get out of the house and share ideas with people in person, face to face, I totally resonate with that. All right. Continuing on down the list here. Number six, make it smart, make it memorable. Number seven, quality is in the details, not the material or the tools. I like that one a lot. Uh, number eight, complaining solves nothing. Worrying solves nothing. Seems very applicable to this pandemic as well. Number nine is a big one we preach. Learn from failure. And number 10, nothing is sacred. Out of those, pick pick one or two out of those that I just read that that you think are are really important. Um, well, for us, creating and analyzing at the same time is is a big one. Just like like I was mentioning, I mean, I think that's probably a real core a real core belief. Like when we talk about uh, naming, it's uh, you know it's it's essential. It's this idea that. If your editor's turned on, you can't like be in that moment, kind of in that the flow. So what the what the, the psychologist coined the term, um, and so I think it's important. It's important to turn that off. And as a writer, it's really hard. It's like if you're going back fixing commas and misspelled words, and it's like something I really struggle with and have to really get over. So that's that's one. Um, and then I think the other one, the one towards the end that talks about materiality, the um, can't remember exactly what it is but it's the materials can you can you read it's like seven or eight it's like um it's about the idea not about the materials quality is in the details not the material or the tools right it's i think it's this idea that uh someone who's someone who's doing doing great work you know you don't have to have it's it's not about like it gets we hear this a lot it's like oh you guys must have a great camera your photos are so nice Mm -hmm. it's like whoa a lot of people have nice cameras, you yep. know, and there are a lot of crappy photos out there. And so it's, it's that kind of idea of like, you know, if you have a good idea and you execute it kind of like with precision and detail, you know, you can use, it doesn't matter. It can be hand-drawn. It can right. be, you know, 40 or what, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. It reminds me of the saying, uh, a poor, a poor craftsman blames his tools. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah that's great. That distills it pretty well. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's transition into, um, we mentioned that you're an author and you, you uh, had a book come out, the naming book. Yeah. Um, so first off, let's just start off by telling us a little bit about what this book uh, is about, what it has in it and what inspired you to, to write it. Sure. So at the beginning, I mentioned a little about how we've kind of analyzed each project and to see what we're good at. And early on, a, a nonprofit hired us to come up with a name as they like dramatically changed their kind of core offering. And the project was really cool. And I never really thought that people got paid to come up with names before. And so kind of like a light came on. I was like, oh, this is awesome. So uh, we kind of, that was fun. It was really hard, but at the end of the day, it was really rewarding. And so it's something we started to do more and more often. But over time, uh, we had employees and then kind of we would hire subcontractors to help generate names. And I needed to really go back and to, uh, really refine the process to help them go from, okay, you're someone who's, you you know, a lot of words. So how do you create names? And so as I went and I did the research, kind of read all the popular 
literature about naming and I looked at some of the academic literature and there was really nothing that, I mean, it, they kind of fell into two camps. One was, it, one would tell you the history of names, which is pretty interesting, but not totally helpful if you're trying to generate names. And the other one would be from the point of view of someone who's good at it and they're telling you the sorts of names that they like. And again, that's, that's interesting, but it's not super helpful if you're trying to actually come up with one name. And so I started building out the process for our team internally. And as I wrote, I just kind of realized that if we as professionals couldn't figure out the best way to do this, like what about the entrepreneur who really, they never really want to learn about naming. You know, they just want to come up with one good name or multiple good names and get back to all of the other thousand things that they're trying to work on at the same time. For sure. And so really, as I started, uh, th th that's when I think the, the idea really crystallized. It was like, this process is, is um, I, th I think I can make it simple and I think I can make kind of like a, almost like a worksheet based process for someone to work through. And if they go through the five steps, I'm convinced that they can come up with a good name. And it's worked for lots of different people. Uh, and I really wrote it with the entrepreneur in mind. He really doesn't want to spend a ton of time learning about naming, but really just wants to get enough to get, to get one good name and then kind of move on. I, I wish I read that a while back. Uh, I spent like, I spent probably three, three, uh, three, four months just trying to think of a name. I, I took my time with it, but what are, what are some of those five steps? You don't have to go through all of them, but just what, what are some of the steps that it takes to, to bring about a name? Yeah. I think it, it gets at like the, what I think are the three hard things. And one is what does deciding on the criteria by which to decide if it's good or not. This is the step that almost everyone skips. And it's what, you know, what does the name practically need to do for you? What are some of the tangible things? Um, and so I, help, I go through a couple of steps to help people really refine their criteria. So if you have like two good ideas, how do you decide on which one's better? And so depending on your company, you know, you might care about uh, the name being really unique because you need to have a trademark, uh, something like maybe you're trying to sell something online. And so you have a ton of competition. Um, or maybe you need to have a short URL or you want something that's aligned with your values. It could be anything there. The, the list is really long and it's different for every company. So once you define your criteria, the second thing I think that's hard is generating lots of ideas. And so I talk a little bit about how to brainstorm, how to brainstorm effectively. Most people, again, know about brainstorming and most people do it really poorly. And so I give some, some tips about how to do it more effectively. One of which we kind of talked a little bit about earlier is if you're brainstorming in a group, make sure you do all the kind of ideation before you get into the group setting. Because if you try to do it together, you really, people always tend to kind of converge on ideas when really this is an, I, all about kind of creating divergent thoughts. Mm. Um, and so kind of the middle three steps are all about how to create as broad a range of ideas across as many different name types as possible. And so we lay out the seven or eight types of names and help people kind of fill in names in each category because you might be surprised, you know, you think you want a name like Apple or Facebook or whatever. So we go through in real words like Apple, foreign language words, uh, compounds like Facebook, affixed words like Spotify, which have a, a thing like that's a word with something on the end. Um, uh, let's see, phrase names like outdoor voices, something like, um, like Pinterest kind of where two words are smushed together. 
Uh, and so going through all of those different name types and explaining, because most people, again, don't think of like names are like structurally different. They just kind of think of like, there's like a sea of words and we're going to try to figure out. But if you break it down into the different structures, you can sometimes, you know, create really interesting and surprising things. Yeah, I think for most people, just to hit on that real quick, that just flies below my conscious radar. I hear a name and it sounds good to me. I don't think, oh, spot if I, like, I don't think of, oh, this is a naming convention. Anyway, I don't want, I don't want to put go off and tangent here, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's exactly right. And it's one of those things. It's like, you don't, you don't want to have to take a test and what are the seven types of brand names? It's like, no one cares, but you just like one time you want to be able to like have a broad range of ideas. And that helps. I think that helps people come up with, with a, a wide range of different, different types of names, names that actually sound different again, because like of like, we have this constant urge towards convergence. And I think it's just drilled into us in school with tests coming up with the right answer, those sorts of things where it's like we, we kind of constantly are, are converging on similar sorts of things. And so some, someone, especially new, new people who are new to naming will say, okay, I have like 10 names. And really when you look at it, it's kind of 10 versions of the same idea where really we want like 10 different ideas. Hmm. Um, and then the last chapter is about the third part, which I think is hard, and it's about making a decision. So it's about how to go from, say, you have 150 ideas, and then looking at it against your criteria, you limit it down to maybe 30 passable names. And then how do you really go from 30 passable names to one or two that you're going to start pushing through on um, you know, trademarking? Interesting. I, uh, one of my big things when I was thinking of names is I'd go to the thesaurus, and I would think of uh, like words that I wanted to have uh, that I wanted to connect to our brand. And then I just type in those words and see what other words came up. And I feel like everybody, I don't know. I feel like that's a, that'd be a common thing for somebody to do. I don't, I don't know if it's common, but I mean, it's definitely very effective. It's like, especially now we have access to so much information. Like people shouldn't feel limited to only words that, you know, it's mm-hmm. just like, there's a ton of stuff out there. Dig into it. You know, it's like, that's, I think, when you can find interesting stuff. The thesaurus and another interesting one that people don't often think of are kind of lists of obscure words or kind of um, inside jargon. So a lot of times what we think about are what are the metaphors you use to describe what you do? And, you know, you might say, well, we help guide our clients to blah, blah, blah. And so it's like, okay, how do we use this navigation metaphor usefully? And so it's like, okay, let's look at kind of the history of navigation. What about the history of seafaring? And so digging down into those terms, you can find really cool, you know, strange words that are, um, that are great because it's like, it's kind of the tip of the spear. So it's kind of like, it's a strange, it might be a strange word and it's like strange enough to get someone to ask you a question. It's like, Oh, what does that mean? And then once they ask you, what does that mean? You kind of have your foot in the door and then you can tell your story. It's like, well, you know, I have this company and we're trying to help people navigate these problems more easily and blah, 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 you know? Yeah. Man, I think that's kind of a glimpse into the creative process that we were talking about because I think that's been very refined through the years of experience that you guys have with this is I call it almost a brain cascade where you start with a, with a general idea, like you said, navigate, and then you let your brain kind of cascade down and make these different connections. Man, that's a, that's a cool thing to be able to be very pointed about it and say, we're going to go this. It just seems like something that would come with experience, I guess is what I'm, I'm trying to get out here. Um, but man, that's awesome. That's a, I think there's a lot of awesome actionable things that, that you were talking about there that came from that book. So I'm, I'm excited. I hope you have a ton of success with that. That sounds uh, like an awesome book. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, now I hope it's useful. Yeah. It sounds like it. it sounds like it will be for sure. It sounds like Evan needs it actually. 
wish I had it anymore. Not yeah. I'm kidding. Um, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's dig into learning. So let's jump through these real quick, and then we'll get into to the city of Lexington here at the end. Um, so let's focus. You got three here. Let's kind of let's power through these. You've got focus uh, is important, but it's a luxury. Talk about that quickly. Yeah, I kind of the first two. I kind of I was so excited about. I'm thinking about it. I kind of had talked about it right at the top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, again, I I think it's it's encouraging, especially uh, early entrepreneurs that you know sometimes you don't. You, it took me. I mean, it took it took us probably five years to figure out what we were really good at. And so it's like, sometimes allow yourself to take time and, you know, there's the practical reality that most people have to make money and I had to make money. And so we had to do a lot of different things until we figured out what, what we were good at and developed a big enough body of work that people would hire us. So really, I think that's the main thing I want to pass along is, you know, you might feel discouraged because you can't focus fast enough, but it's just like, you know, give it some time. So it's a luxury. Yeah. And the next one is something that I think is so important for everybody to sit down and just really think about. So I don't know if people uh, take a very systematic approach or thoughtful approach to this and until maybe it's, it's later in their life. Um, and maybe even, so my big thing is like when you go into college, you're so young, you're really not going to know what you want to do yet. You're expected to pick a four year degree and pay all this money once you're getting scholarship and then come out and, and hope that that's what you love doing. Um, but you have on here, which is, you know, find an intersection of what you're good at, what you can make money doing, what benefits your community. Um, that's probably what you mean by that is, is basically to help somebody figure out what they want to do um, with their lives and maybe even their business. Uh, so talk about that that quickly. I'm sure it's self-explanatory, but maybe a little bit more color. I think, you know, as you were talking, the funny thing is, is I've always thought about it in terms of our business, but really it makes just as much sense for a person too. Like it's it's the same thing, like as I think about my role within Bullhorn and how it's changed over the years. It's the, it's the same thing. Like I'm trying to like stop doing the things that I keep screwing up and help us figure out how to work more profitably in, you know, in a way that's less stressful. And then, then how can we better, you know, benefit our community? So, and for us really, I think we have to, if any of those three things start to fall, the whole thing kind of falls apart. So you know, if you, if, if you're not doing something you're good at, you're going to be miserable. If you're not making money, the business is obviously going to fall apart. And I think for, for us, at least if it's not benefiting the community in some ways, it just, it feels sort of pointless. And so we don't have the passion. Then it's like, if it's not benefiting, then like we can't really be good at it because you don't bring the same passion to it. And so it's kind of all three are pretty, pretty closely tied together. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, it's that, benefiting the community or your purpose that, that keeps you going, right? Um, yeah, for sure. One of the ones I really wanted to talk about and hear your thoughts on, because you were vague here, you said re- read fiction. Uh, yeah. And I, I personally have always struggled with this because to this point, all I read is, you know, business, technology, and, you know, nonfiction. Uh, and I've always told myself I need to get into fiction because I grew up loving fiction. Um, but I just kind of haven't done it in the last, you know, five, six years almost. I feel like, what, why is fiction important? Well, I think it's especially important for me and, and I kind of get it like, um, because since, and this is kind of an insight into my personality, the, uh, so when we started, I felt really self-conscious about my education. Like I wasn't qualified to run a business. I was like, I have a degree in English, like the high, the highest, the highest math class I took was called college math. 
<laughs> I mean, like, what is college math? Uh, and so I was like, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not qualified. And so I found this, it was some blog post called like the hundred books you need to read to have the equivalent of an MBA. And so I downloaded the, I put the whole thing into a spreadsheet, started, you know, chugging through them. And then over the years I've kind of built it up. It's probably like 300 books long now. But, um, so I kind of, I get the drive for nonfiction and I think that's super important because it's, you know, it's important as leaders, especially and people founding companies and in leadership roles in companies to be as educated and to have as much, you know, have the best information possible, but that has a limit. And I think the limit is with empathy, which as a, as a leader, you can only know so much. If you can't connect and lead people with empathy, people ultimately won't listen to you and they won't follow you. And so I think there's nothing better in the world at building empathy than reading fiction because you literally have to put yourself into someone else's perspective to even understand the story. And so I think reading fiction is an inherently empathetic act. And so it kind of helps start to build those muscles. And so you can kind of reflexively when you're in a situation at work with a coworker or someone who's kind of reports to you, or if you're talking to a client, um, you know, for us, it's like, we often joke that our, the work would be great if we didn't have to have clients, you know, it'd be the funnest job ever. But, um, and, and we're joking, but the, like part of it's true. It's like clients can be a pain in the ass. But one thing, like when we think about it, it, the reality is this is something they're doing probably once, maybe twice in their whole career. And it's something that we do 30 times a year. And so it's like, for us, it feels totally natural and easy to just make these wholesale changes where for them, it's super stressful. And so I think, being able to have the empathy to imagine what it feels like in their position, it helps us kind of do a better job of leading them through the transition. So that's why I think it's important. And we try to read, um, we try to read fiction as a group. We kind of always have something going uh, because I think it's important at all levels, whether you're an account planner or, an, you know, designer or whatever. Yeah. Makes so much sense. I don't know if I've thought of it from that perspective, but Makes so much sense. Cool. Uh, okay. We always, as always, we're going to end with bringing it back to Lexington, talking about our city, talking about how we can improve it and what needs to be improved uh, and what we're doing well. So um, let's start with, you know, well, first of all, you know, you've, you've been uh, helping brands in Lexington, you know, grow for how many years now has Bullhorn been around? Uh, almost 12. So 12 years you've been in Lexington watching, you know, companies evolve. Uh, how has Lexington changed over the years that you've noticed? Uh, I think Lexington over the last 12 years, like, like 12 years ago, I don't think people thought about design very much. It just like wasn't on, it wasn't on people's mind. And I think definitely the design aesthetic overall has changed a lot and it's gotten a lot more sophisticated. And so I think that's a, a great and important change, you know, whether it's from your like a, lo a rest, local restaurant or the hospital or whatever, you know, I think there's good design gives people a sense of trust. Like if you're going to pay attention to do that part, well, you're probably going to do the other parts well. Um, and so that's some, that's a change that I've seen. And still, I think it, it needs to go a lot further and we're always frustrated and want to like push things faster further. Um, but I definitely think, I think that's been, that's been one thing. And, and also just kind of the, it's, uh, the downtown area has changed a lot, especially the north side where we are has changed a ton over yeah. the last 12 years. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's totally different place. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward. I really like the, I've been to the night market there several times. That's brought culture up there, and I'm looking forward to that that marketplace as well. That's going to be when they, the gray gray line, I think is what they're calling it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the gray line will be a, that'll be a nice thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what, what is Lexington doing uh, extremely well? What, what do you think separates Lexington uh, from other cities that you've been? What, what makes it Lexington in your mind? Well, there's like the practical thing of having an urban service boundary. I think that makes Lexington a better city than like Louisville, for example, mm-hmm. where Louisville is so sprawling. I agree 100%. Um, and so I, I think that's something that's really good. It makes it feel like with relatively low population, you still feel like there's an urban core and you can really quickly, like I'm a bicycle rider. So I like just being able to get out of town in like, you know, five or 10 minutes. Um, that's kind of a practical thing. I don't know, like uh, what else is Lexington doing well? I mean, I think increasing, increasing partnerships, like what you mentioned at the beginning with um, Commerce Lex, having the university Commerce Lex, business people working together more closely, uh, like all of that seems to be going well. And I think we can just do more and more of it and kind of learn from how those partnerships are going. Um, you know, things like, like, I think Awesome Inc. started around the same time that we did. And it's amazing to see the impact that, that an organization like that's had on the city. I think a lot of cool things have come out of kind of s- small ideas that have been really supported. Absolutely. No, my favorite, I've got to, yeah, I've got to agree. My, one of my favorite parts of Lexington is that urban service boundary. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's amazing that you can, like you said, be downtown and then five minutes later be on a horse farm. Uh, and then my favorite, I, I've flown all around the United States. My favorite place to land has always been, you know, Lexington. Just it's landing so right over the, the horses and uh, it's just so beautiful. That's, that's yeah, you know, you can, it's funny, you can start to like, see the patterns and you kind of know you're getting close. Yeah, that's exactly. cool. So uh, what could we be doing better? What, what do you think the city of Lexington needs to, to get together and do better? Um, I think this is like a, a national issue that has been really punctuated in the last month or so is I think, you know, during this downturn, we've seen uh, black owned businesses fare much more poorly in um, this sort of thing. So I think we can do a lot more to support black entrepreneurs and black owned businesses. And we need to figure out as a company, like, or as a, as like a business community, how to do that and how to support each other. Um, so that's, that's definitely like a local issue that I'm passionate about and interested in, but it's, it's not like it's a Lexington problem. It's a, you know, that's yeah. a national statistic. That's what, that's what are some tangible things somebody can do to, to do that other than maybe just go in and, and doing business there. Or if it's a restaurant going and getting food there, what are some, Yep, you said you're doing some work there, and or maybe that you're passionate about it. So I assume you're trying to do some work there. What are some tangible, you know, tangible things that people can do to help? Yeah. So uh, we're we're kind of taking three steps, and again, like I'm not an expert in this, uh, but I'm trying to listen to experts. So we're we're kind of doing three things in a, in an effort to become a what we would call an anti-racist culture at at Bullhorn. And so the first thing we've been doing is self-reflection, kind of identifying the points at which we've had privileges that other people haven't and like, what are, what are those points and how can we acknowledge them and, and not feel bad about it, but just acknowledge that it exists. It's a privilege we've had that some people might not have. And that can be as, as something like having, um, uh, growing up in a middle-class neighborhood or, you know, there are all kinds of ways that we're, that we have advantages. Uh, so we're moving from kind of self-reflection. We're reading a couple books. There's a book 
by an author, last name is Oluo, O-L-U-O. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and it's called, So You Want to Talk About Race? And there's another book by a guy named I- Ibram X. Kendi called uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And so we're reading both of those books. And then the third thing is the we're, we're moving and trying to see how we can unique we can offer our unique skill set to the business to the black business community in particular and i think the important thing is like what the posture is it's not like if we came in and said here's we're going to fix all these problems um well number one you just look like an asshole but two i think it's also just not particularly effective or sensitive so it's like basically how like what are there things we can do and so that's something we're working on trying to figure out how to do. And then additionally, like through our, through our pro bono work that we've been doing over the last two years, we're working on the um, United Nations set out these sustainable development goals. And so we're working towards the three uh, related to uh, no hunger, quality education, and gender equality. And so we're working with neighborhood groups that tend to be, uh, oh, like, uh, well, African-American and Latino people are overrepresented in these communities. And so things like in Lexington, Common Good, uh, in Louisville, we're working with Western Middle, which is uh, 60% African-American middle school, and they've just transitioned to being an art school, and they're having all these awesome outcomes. Um, Everything's totally changing there. It's really exciting. Uh, There's an organization called The Opposite Shop in West Louisville, which does really cool... um, writing exercises with with people in those in the forest communities in the city so that's that's some of the stuff that we're doing um but like i said i'm not an expert and we're just we're trying to have like a posture of humility and try to figure it out but it's it's certainly important to us yeah that's awesome we've been having those same kind of conversations and i think that's one of the the big aspects of this is just talking about it yeah um, trying to trying to spur on that conversation and and hopefully lead to those changes. Um, so yeah, that's uh kudos to you guys for, for reading those books and taking those steps to be anti-racist. I know we've, Evan and I've talked about that a lot. We're actually uh, supposed to record here soon with Canopy from Louisville. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right around on, on that same topic. So we're looking forward to that for sure. I'm actually um, yeah. one of the, I'm one of their board members and oh, I, really? I came cool. up with the name Canopy. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Everything is connected. connected, man. Love it. Awesome. All right, Brad. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an awesome conversation and one I've really enjoyed particularly. So uh, if, if there's ever anything we can do to help, help spread the word about the book, please let us know. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. It's been great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.